56. Last week, we found ourselves beginning uh, what I called the hinge of the book of Isaiah. We're going to finish off that hinge tonight, and the, the first part, 34 and 35, uh, that hinge, as we saw, is a culmination of the judgment chapters in 34, and then kind of an above and beyond picture of the restoration beyond in chapter 35. What we find in chapters 36 through 39, which we'll look at tonight, uh, is the narrative portion of the book that tells us how things actually panned out with Shennacherib's attack on Jerusalem, as well as uh, King Hezekiah's response to that, his trust in God, God's deliverance, and then the story of Hezekiah uh, and his pronouncement from Isaiah of an early death and then God healing him and giving him 15 more years of life and then finally him parading all of his wealth before an envoy from Babylon. Now if you've been studying with us and that sounds familiar it should because these stories back to back in the same order uh, are found starting in 2 Kings 19 uh, and 20, um, telling these same stories. In fact, uh, the account also occurs, at least of Shennacherib's attack, in 2 Chronicles. Um, but the parallel in 2 Kings and Isaiah is much closer. Only 2 Kings and Isaiah both include uh, not just the attack of Shennacherib, but the extending of Hezekiah's life and his uh, revealing of the envoys of Babylon. In fact, there's so much shared word-for-word -word content, we can easily assume um, that one of th three things is the case. Either Second Kings borrows from Isaiah and then edits, or Isaiah borrows from Second Kings and then edits, or there's another document that they both borrowed from. Um, and if you just read them back to back, flipping pages, you'll see that they are tremendously close, except when they're not. So there's some sort of shared history and some sort of shared heritage. And honestly, I don't really find that to be surprising for two reasons. Uh, one, because we can imagine uh, another set of books or another author that would include, for example, a complete collection of the sermons of Martin Luther King, which also might uh, include the events leading up to the final sermon he gave before he died. I have seen the mountain, right? Uh, and at the same time, we can imagine that that entire speech, that entire sermon, uh, would also be contained in a biography of King, okay? The second reason why I think it's, uh, it's listed for us twice is because of its importance. If you look, for example, at the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, we find uh, corresponding uh, and therefore repeated versions of the same story, edited for the intentions and purposes of each author. Or even a closer parallel, consider the book of Acts, uh, where the author of Acts, Luke, records for us Paul's conversion story, not just twice, but three times within the same book. Okay. 
what happens then, what's important or significant in the Gospels in that repetition or in the book of Acts or here in including it both in 2 Kings and Isaiah is not just its significance in both contexts, like my Martin Luther King illustration, but also the emphasis or the importance of these particular events. They're worth reminding you of. They're worth recording you, uh, recording for us twice. Now, what we need to pay attention to as we look at it again is what purpose it serves in the book of Isaiah. Now, if you've been studying with us all the way back since chapter 13, Isaiah's primary point has been to convince Israel not to trust in anyone but the Lord, specifically preparing them for what we're going to read here. Okay? And so in that sense, the narrative is the conclusion and the climax it's the resolve of our questions, which says, okay, how is this all going to work together? How is it that God is going to both discipline Judah, the southern kingdom, and deliver them from Assyria? Now, there's another note about this, and you may remember that we touched on this back in 2 Kings, but these two separate stories, the story of Hezekiah's healing and the visit from the Babylonian envoy, and the story of Judah's deliverance from Shennacherib, the Assyrian king, are actually chronologically reversed. Okay. Now, the reason why we believe that that is the case is because of what it says pretty clearly here in uh, chapter 38. Uh, and so notice verse 1, in those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. Now, chronologically, we would just assume that follows the story of the deliverance of Judah from Shennacherib. But notice verse 6. God speaking says, I will deliver you from your sickness and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. That future tense statement, here's what I'm going to do, bring you deliverance from Assyria, makes us assume that these stories have been chronologically flopped. Now again, that shouldn't really be surprising to us because all of Isaiah's prophecies are not ordered chronologically either in their fulfillment or in their giving. Okay? But the question becomes, why tell the story backwards? In fact, like I said, 2 Kings does the same thing. But here in Isaiah, the reason seems to be a couple of things. Um, one... Uh, Hezekiah's sickness and recovery is going to serve as a solid contrast between the end of Shennacherib as a king and the end of Hezekiah. Okay, so there's a contrast there. Second, it is this story um, of Hezekiah's sickness that leads to the interest of the Babylonians. They hear about King Hezekiah's sickness, they send him good tidings, you know, a get well sued card, and then when he, they hear he's been healed, they come to visit. And during that occasion, as we'll see in chapter 38, Hezekiah opens up the storehouse, shows him all of his wealth, all of his might, all of his strength, okay? And let me just remind you uh, that that's not just general hospitality, okay? Babylon is a faraway people group. The only reason Hezekiah would do so is because he wants to get on close and friendly terms with Babylon. In other words, an alliance. Okay? And so that shows, us, uh, that shows us something significant because unbeknownst to Hezekiah, this will be the people that bring judgment on the house of Judah. Okay? 
And so last little piece here, why it happens in 39 instead, it's because it gives us the forward look, okay, that is not overly positive, because yes, Hezekiah was a good king, but his son Manasseh will be a terrible king and will uproot everything that Hezekiah has done. However, Hezekiah's grandson, Josiah, will have another great reform, and then things will flop again, and eventually Judah will find themselves under God's judgment, okay? And so this, at this hinge part, helps us to look beyond, okay? And as we'll see when we get into chapters 40 through 66, that's where Isaiah begins to look even further beyond that window, okay? And so Babylon sets the stage, the warning of the future destruction of Jerusalem, even though they've been spared from Shennacherib and Assyria, sets the stage for the prophecies in the second half of the book. And so for those reasons, the stories are chronologically flopped, okay? Now, um, I think there's one other thing I wanted to point out. Yes, here's the last thing I wanted to point out, okay? Look with me very quickly, all the way back at Isaiah chapter one, verse one. Like many of the prophetic books in the Old Testament, the opening verse introduces us not just to the prophet, but the duration of his ministry. Notice what it says here, verse 1 of chapter 1, the vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Okay, those are consecutive rules, the kings of Judah. And so if we wanted to draw the open and closing parenthesis of Isaiah's ministry, it began in the days of King Uzziah, and it ended in the days of Hezekiah, okay? Now, the reason that's significant is because we get to the end of that history, the last 15 years of Hezekiah's life, in chapter 39. Excuse me, yes, in chapter 39, okay? So all of the prophecies, 40 through 66, are all given somewhere in this range, prior to that narrative ending of the book, during the reign of Hezekiah or earlier, all the way back to the rule of Uzziah. So why are they put at the end of the book? Because they all look beyond the life of Isaiah. All of the prophecies that we've looked at so far, except for the messianic ones that do look beyond, the majority of them are culminating in this attack of Shennacherib, right? But chapters 40 through 66 all look well beyond Isaiah's lifetime. And if you look closely at the Old Testament prophets, uh, another example that I like to point to because it's easy and you might be familiar with it is the book of Daniel, you will see that they are always arranged by prophecies given during the lifetime of the prophet that are fulfilled in the prophet up front and prophecies that were given by the prophet that have not yet been fulfilled at his death in the second half. And the reason it's because all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says, here's how you will know a prophet of the Lord. Two things. One, he will represent the Lord and not lead you to any other God. Okay. Two, the things that he says will come true. And so you will know that he is truly my prophet. Okay. And so the books are arranged so that you see the validation of the prophet and that prepares you for the forward-looking prophecies of the prophet. And so Daniel, as you get past chapter 7, we move from Daniel's life and ministry to things that are well beyond his life, okay? Isaiah is arranged in the same way. Okay. 
Plenty of introduction there, but now let's look at the text itself. Back in Isaiah chapter 36. It opens in verse 1 saying, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Okay, so 14 years into his, range, uh, into his reign, Shennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now again, if you've been studying with us, this is familiar territory because we've had to constantly refer forward to this event in the last few weeks. But what we have here is the Assyrian army uh, who has surrounded Jerusalem and trampled upon and conquered every walled city in the area of Judah, okay? And so they've conquered and moved in until Jerusalem is surrounded and it is the only thing left, okay? Verse two, the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army, okay? And so what happens is a representative of Shennacherib, Rabshakeh, uh, has been sent as the mouthpiece of the Assyrians, as a representative, as the messenger of the king of Assyria. And so he comes to Hezekiah, and notice he comes to him at Jerusalem with a great army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, a couple of things. One, that would be right at the walled city uh, gates of Jerusalem, okay? Uh, two, most likely here, when it says that uh, Hezekiah's servants come out to him, they don't come open the gates and come outside. They come to the wall, and they're speaking over the wall to this messenger. And then finally, significantly, we're told that the part of the wall where they have this meeting is by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Okay. Now, interestingly enough, that is the same place where we encountered the last, uh, or it's the same location where the last narrative part of Isaiah took place, all the way back in Isaiah chapter 7. What was different is there, it is Ahaz who is figuring out what to do about Assyria, a few kings earlier, and it's not a representative of Assyria that comes, but Isaiah. And Isaiah says, stop worrying about the Assyrians because I, God, am going to deliver you. And Ahaz balks at that. We see his untrust and his unbelief. Isaiah says, ask for a sign. And he goes, no way, I'm not going to test the Lord. But really, he's not interested in God. He's just interested in his own strategy. In fact, if you go back and read, the reason he's at the pool is because he's preparing for a siege. Okay. And so here, we have the same setup. And the question is what? How is Hezekiah going to respond? Is this going to be like Ahaz, a great expression of unbelief? Or is he going to believe and trust in the Lord? Okay. Verse 3, And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, uh, Asaph the recorder. Now, we've met these men in earlier passages, but what's especially interesting here is notice that it labels Elikim as over the household and Shebna as the secretary. This is a fulfillment 
of Isaiah 22:15, where Isaiah prophesies to Shebna, and he says, right now you are over the household, but you're going to be demoted. And we see here that just as Isaiah said, that's come to place. There's been a shakeup in the political cabinet of King Hezekiah. Okay? But it's these three men who come to represent Hezekiah to hear out the Rabshakeh uh, and respond to him. But as you can imagine, put yourself in uh, the shoes of the citizens of Jerusalem. You know the army's there. You know they've conquered everything around. And now their representative comes and this is happening, not privately in the palace, but right on the city walls. Where are you? You're right there listening in, right? Because this conversation determines your safety, your security. Uh, you know, if you live or die, it's all going to play out right here. And so it's not just these four people and the Assyrian army that are all present, but also the citizens of Jerusalem that have crowded up on the walls to overhear what's happening here. Verse 4, the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Okay, two things here. First, notice that he doesn't say thus says to King Hezekiah, right? He just says, say this to Hezekiah. Speak to Hezekiah, not King Hezekiah. There's no time for dignity or respect because Rabshakeh and Shennacherib's whole plan here is to dethrone Hezekiah for his earlier rebellion. Okay, so there's no respect. The reason I'm pointing this out um, is as we read, I want you to understand how much of this speech that's given is significantly and clearly psychological warfare. Okay? These words are selected and chosen to make a point, and the point is surrender. Okay? And so there's no respect given for the king, and then notice how the king of Assyria is identified, not just as the king, but the great king. Which, side note, in the writings we have from the Assyrians is a classic way to identify the kings of Assyria. By name, the great king, the king of Assyrians, okay? Then the second thing I want you to notice is the question asked, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Notice as we keep reading how many times that word trust or related concepts keep occurring. Shennacherib's big question through Rabshakeh here is one of trust. Don't put your trust in false hopes, Judah. And so notice, uh, notice as he continues here, verse 5, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom now do you trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, are you trusting in, or you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all who trust in him. He says, oh, is this what's going to keep you safe? Is Egypt going to keep you safe? And he says, it's like a broken staff, and as soon as you put on your weight, it just gives way and you fall. Now, interestingly enough here, this question, who do you trust? And even this illustration of Egypt is one we're already familiar with. Not in the mouths of Assyria and its representatives, but in the mouth of Isaiah. Right? And so the questions are coming the same. And it's even possible, I would even say likely, that Rabshakeh knows about the words of Isaiah. Okay? Remember, uh, in the ancient world, just like today, acts of espionage and investigation on foreign soil is a natural part of warfare. 
okay? And so it may be that he's aware of the ministry of Isaiah and he really leans into utilizing that for his own devices. But the first question he asks is, are you gonna trust in Egypt? Because that will fail. And then he continues in verse seven. But you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? He says, okay, maybe you trust in God. Maybe you trust in your Jehovah that I've heard so much about. He goes, isn't that the same God that you've knocked out all of his places of power? Isn't that the same one that in Hezekiah's reforms, you've reduced his worship down to just a single place in Jerusalem? Now, two things. It, it, It shows here that Rabshakeh doesn't have a good understanding of Jewish thinking, right? He doesn't seem to be aware that those high places were invalid, that the worship of Israel was supposed to be unique and different and only set, as it says in Deuteronomy, in the place that God would choose. But also, recognize who's in the hearing of this statement, the people of Jerusalem. Now, do you think that every single Jewish person was on board with Hezekiah's reforms? Of course not. They worship in the high places because they believed in the high places. They worshiped in those ways because they thought that's how it worked. And here Josiah comes and he takes them all away. Do you see what he's doing here? He's dividing, he's splitting his audience. He's reducing their confidence in King Hezekiah. In fact, notice how it's worded again. Look at it with me again in verse 7. Is this not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? He's not addressing Hezekiah there, is he? He's talking about Hezekiah because he's talking to the people. Okay. He says, verse 8, Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able uh, on your part to set riders on them. Okay. Now, obviously, this is facetious. It's tongue-in-cheek. This is not just him saying, let's just do it fairly. I'll increase your military ability so we have even odds. Okay. As we'll see, by the time the armies show up, 2,000 soldiers is not going to go very far. His point is, you can't even find 2,000 strong men to ride horses if I gave them to you. Okay. It, is, uh, it is mocking that's going on here. And so what is he saying here? You're completely outnumbered. Don't trust in your strength. Don't trust in your might. Don't trust in your numbers. That's not going to work. And then verse 9, how then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? He says there's not going to be any cavalry. There's not going to be any, uh, you know, reinforcements. Your strength lines are cut off. You are on your own and you are outnumbered. How can you stand against our men who are strong and proven? Verse 10, moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? He says also, I'm I'm here at the command of your God. He's the one who told me to come and conquer this city. Now, interestingly enough, again, if you read Isaiah closely, there's some truth in that. God is using Assyria to discipline, but that's not how Rabshakeh means it. In fact, again, in the ancient writings of the Assyrians, we find many places where they speak of the people they conquered and they say, hey, Egypt, before we conquered you, it was Ra who sent us. This is classic and usual tactics of Assyria, okay? But again, it's psychological warfare. But he's not done. He says, the Lord said to me, go up and against this land and destroy it. Then, verse 11, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, please 
Speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Don't speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Okay. Now, much like Latin was a few centuries ago or like English is today, uh, um, Aramaic here was the lingua franca of international policy. Okay. But we find out all of a sudden that Reb Sheka has been speaking in Hebrew. And so here they intercede and they go, let's have a private word for a second. We understand, uh, um, we understand Aramaic just fine. Let's talk in that language and not in the language of the people. And notice what Rabshakeh does, verse 12. But Rabshakeh said, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who were doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? He doubles down. He pushes harder. He says, oh, no, I want everybody to hear what's going to happen if you don't surrender, uh, which is horrible. Verse 13, Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Is your trust in Hezekiah? See, same question again. Can Hezekiah help you, Judah? Verse 15 and then 16, do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me, come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. And so he says, here's how this is going to work if you surrender, it's going to be good for you. For a while, you'll continue here, unconquered, unseized, to continue to work your own fields, and it'll be good. He says there will be economic success. In fact, this is the same language that many of the prophets use to talk about the restoration of Israel, that the economy will be as such that every man will have his own vineyard, that every man will have his own property to farm, that every man will have his own well to water his own property. Okay, that's signs of prosperity. And then he says, and yeah, it's our policy to take you away to another place. We're going to do that. And he says, but it's going to be a land. I mean, he doesn't use this language, but it's pretty close. A land flowing with milk and honey. Effectively, what he's saying here is, I can fulfill the promises that God has given you. It doesn't have to be this land. I'll bring you to another land. I can be your savior and provider. He's seeking to tempt the citizens of Jerusalem into a coup, going against the will of the king and turning themselves over wholesale. Okay, And then he warns in verse 18, beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. We get another tactic here. He says, has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the kings of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Severfame? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? He says, have you checked our resume? Didn't all those people have gods that they worshipped? Were any of them strong enough? And notice this, because it's important. Not strong enough to withstand the gods of Assyria, strong enough to withstand the king of Assyria. Okay, He's the great conqueror. He's the great victor. This is divine warfare, but the king of Assyria sees himself as playing on the battlefield of the gods and victorious. He says, will there be any deliverance? What's the difference, he says, between these conquered non-gods and your about-to-be-conquered non-god? Verse 20. In fact, notice the last one. Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Sound familiar? 
Samaria was the capital of Israel, right? That's your God's people as well, and we conquered them. What's different here? Right? Those are the questions. Verse 20, who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Now, notice the contrast there. Those gods, this God. It's going to be very significant when we turn, return next week and Isaiah starts to ask the question, how do the other gods compare to this God? Okay. But here, that's the same question. He says, why do you expect things to be different? And wisely, verse 21, they were silent, the people, and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Okay. So the servants were set out, and then the crowd was prepped. We're not here to give an answer. We're just here to hear him out. We're not going to make any concession. We're not going to seek for some sort of parlay. We're not going to make uh, compromising suggestions. We're just going to say nothing, okay? Verse 22, then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, remember, external signs of mourning, and told him the words of Rabshakeh. Now, when they come with their clothes torn, what is their conclusion of the matter? It's over. We should just, there's nothing to be done. We are completely outgunned and outmatched, and there is no way we are going to survive. And so they come with their clothes torn, and verse 1, chapter 37, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Okay? Notice the progression here. The servants go out, they hear, they come to Hezekiah, he hears. And he goes into the temple because he wants to move this right up the chain of command, right? He wants to take the words of Rabshakeh, and we'll see him do this very specifically in a minute, before the Lord. Okay, verse 2, he sent Elikim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary of the senior priest, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now remember, for years, Isaiah has been warning them of this coming. For years, he's told them that Egypt will fail them when the time comes. And here, he sends his people publicly in sackcloth and ashes, including the priests. What is he doing? He's publicly declaring, he's confessing, he's publicly repenting. I was wrong. Isaiah, you were right. We need your help. They said to him, verse 3, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Now notice there, the distress, the rebuke, disgrace, those are not the distress caused by Rabshakeh, the rebuke of Rabshakeh, and the disgrace that Rabshakeh has shown the people. This is before the Lord, right? The Lord has distressed them. The Lord has rebuked them, just as Isaiah said, and the disgrace they bear is in the eyes of the Lord, okay? He says, children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It's a paraphrase of what Isaiah said. He said, all of your plans and strategies are like a pregnant woman who will conceive and all that there will be is chaff. No life in it, no production, no nothing. And so he owns up to all of that. And then notice verse four, he says, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. He says, pray for us, Isaiah. And he says, pray for us because maybe God will hear the blasphemous words of Rabshakeh. 
Not pray for us because we are the last faithful remnants and we deserve to be delivered, but pray for us because the king hasn't just offended us, he's offended the living God, right? His tactic is this is a chance for God to show himself to be greater than the king of Assyria, show himself to be the greater than the gods of all the nations that Assyria has conquered. Now, verse 5, when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, don't be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Syria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Okay? Now, I want you to notice there's a near and a far in that. First, there's going to be relief. This army that's right here, they're going to be delayed because they're going to be called out of action because of a rumor. And he says, I'm going to do that. And second, he says, I will tell you, at home, in his own land, Shennacherib's going to die. Okay? So he says, don't be afraid of him. And we still don't know what God's going to do, but he's going to do these things first. So notice verse 8, Rebshekah returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard, that's the rumor, that the king had left Lachish. Okay? And so he goes, wait, Shennacherib's not in Lachish? What's going on? And so he rushes to the front lines and he finds him entangled with Egypt. Now, this is where Egypt loses. This is where they prove to be no help to Israel at all because this is where they are conquered. Now, side note, for history buffs, a good deal of this record we're reading right now is recorded on the Taylor prism, which tells the story of Assyria's conquerings, including their siege of Jerusalem. What's interesting is it includes this that we're talking about right here, and when it gets to Jerusalem, it just says, and the king of Assyria turned around and went home, and we're not told why. Okay? Now, that's super strange for there to be no reason. And you go, well, the reason that's given here is pretty dramatic. Why doesn't it record that it's because he lost 185,000 soldiers? It's because the whole point of the Taylor prism and other documents like it is to praise the rule of the king. And this is a tremendous embarrassment, especially after words like these. What could possibly stop us? Can your God protect us? And then the inexplicable happens. And so basically, it's like when you're talking to somebody and you need to have that I told you so conversation and they're walking through what's happened and then they kind of mumble and rush through the punchline, right? That's effectively what the prism does too. It goes, and we were going to take Jerusalem, and we didn't, but anyways, and it just continues on, right? It hides this great failure. But nonetheless, we have a good deal of historical verifying accounts from Assyrian documents um, focused on these stories here. And so, he leaves, and then notice verse 9, the king heard concerning Turka, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you, and when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, Hezekiah saying, thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Why is he repeating himself here? He says, don't mistake this for deliverance. I'll be back. Okay, that's what he's saying here. He continues, verse, uh, verse 11, behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden, whom were in Telassar? 
Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Servam, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? And so he writes a letter, and just like his messenger said, he reiterates, have you seen my resume? They didn't stand. No one will be left in Jerusalem, just like the other places. No one will stand against me. And this is the thing about a life of conquering. The king of Assyria has come to the conclusion that he is the master of history and that he will make his own way and nothing will stand in his way. Okay. Now, notice what happens in verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it and he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. Okay. Now, recognize that for what it is. He's not telling God anything he doesn't know, but he is overwhelmed by the danger and the threats here, and he brings it before the Lord, physically just lays it out and says, have you read this? Have you heard the words of Shennacherib? Notice what he prays in verse 15. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Now, as he prays here, we find the same thing that we find in all the Bible's prayers, that it begins with an address, right? Before he gets to his petition, he puts the address on the envelope of his prayer, and this one is long. It's not just, dear God, or as you might say, Heavenly Father, right? Listen to it again, and notice how intentional and large these terms are, okay, in verse Verse 16, O Lord of hosts, that's Lord of the armies, God of Israel, that's our God, enthroned above the cherubim, that's speaking of, uh, you know, enthroned is an idea of ruling. He says, you are the God, you alone. He continues, he says, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you're not just the king of Israel. Unlike Shenechabrib thinks, you are not just the king of the Jews. You are the king of all nations. He is not the master of destinies. You are the decider of history. In fact, he says you have made heaven and earth. Now, as we've talked about before, this address isn't so your prayer makes it to the right God. The address is because we need to remember who it is we pray to. And Hezekiah gives us an amazing example here. Before he asks for help, he needs to know where his help comes from. And he invigorates his faith. He reminds himself of who God is and he calls God to be who he knows him to be, which is faith. The request begins in verse 17. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Shedekarib, which he has sent to mock the living God. He says, hear these words. See this attack. Take it all in, verse 18. Truly, O Lord... The kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods in the fire because they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Lord. He says, this is about your reputation. God, Shennacherib has attacked your glory. 
and who you are, and in doing so has provided an opportunity for you to fully and finally declare yourselves unique among the gods of nation, the only God who really is, the one who really can stop the Assyrian king because he is, uh, he is God and the Assyrian king is merely a man. And it's amazing here, isn't it? Hezekiah's prayer is not merely one of need and desperation, although it is. It's not rooted in uh, any sort of deservation. It's not even a call for mercy, isn't it? It's a call for God to defend his honor. It's almost as if Hezekiah goes, oh, now it's personal, right? He recognizes the the significance of these things, and he calls God to show himself to be who he is Verse 21, then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Shennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. See the cause and effect there? Why these words, that, why this thus saith the Lord? Because you have prayed. Okay. Now that's a little bit jarring when we've been going through an entire book of Isaiah's whole ministry of prophecy where he basically has already said what God is going to do here, that he's going to deliver them. And yet here God says, well, since you asked, yes, I will answer your prayer. But we find that balance or that tension or that paradox or whatever you want to call it from the beginning of the Bible to the end of it. God accomplishes his will and he is sovereign in laying it out. In fact, next week, He's going to lay that out as an evidence that he's really God. He says, who else? What other God? What other religion has a God declared the end from the beginning and said, this is my plan. I will accomplish it. He says, that's how you know I'm the real God, because I tell you what I'm going to do and then I do it. Okay. On the other hand, on the other hand, it is Hezekiah's intercession that leads to God's answering. In fact, in Ezekiel, there is a very sobering passage where God says, I looked to and fro across the whole land looking for anyone who would stand in the gap and intercede for the people of Israel, and I found none. So I brought judgment. These things are not in tension. In fact, I would suggest to you that the the clearest way forward we see throughout Scripture is that the proclaimed word of God Both, here's what I'm going to do, like the prophecies of Isaiah, and that this is the type of God I am. Here is my character. Should lead to prayer. Should instigate the call for deliverance. I mean, just look at the weird prayers of Moses, where he comes to God and he says, God, you said you would do these things, so do them. I mean, it seems provocative, doesn't it? It almost seems out of place, almost offensive. It's like, God, you said, you promised. He sounds like a little child. It makes it sound like God is unreliable and we have to twist his arm to get him to do the things he already said he would do. Is God the keeper of his promises or only if we annoy him so much? But it's just the opposite. Moses comes in profound, almost provocative faith because he knows what God has said. That's all Hezekiah is doing here. And it's that faith. Where does faith come from according to the book of Hebrews? Excuse me, the book of Romans. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is God's statements that are the ground for faith, not our faith that causes God to speak. Right? So, how does God respond? 
Now notice here, this is the word concerning the Lord has spoken concerning him. And who is this word to? Is it to Hezekiah? Mm -mm. It's to Shennacherib. Shennacherib writes a letter and God says, okay, I'm going to write a letter as well. And the first picture he gives here is, she despises you, she scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. Okay, so Jerusalem is going to despise you, Shennacherib, going to scorn you, and then identifying uh, Zion here as, as a virgin. The idea here is not of Jerusalem's purity, but of their youth. It's a little girl mocking the powerful king. That's the picture here, okay? She wags her head behind you, daughter of Jerusalem, okay? And so effectively, the picture is of a young girl laughing at the retreat of this powerful army, okay? And then she, he continues, whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel? By your servants you have mocked the Lord and have said with my many chariots, I've gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest Caesars, its choicest Cypress, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Now, that's a little over the top, okay? The picture is if he sets his foot down in Egypt and then River Nile just dries up. The picture is if he steps into the forest of Lebanon, this great forest in the Middle East, and the trees just fall before him, right? But it's actually very similar to the self-attestation of the Assyrian kings when they talk about themselves. He says, this is who you think you are, but, verse 26, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruin, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field, and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it's grown. He says, you've made a tremendous mistake here. He says, you're like an axe that boasts because it cut down the forest. He says, you've been a tool in my hand. I'm the one who predestined this. I'm the one who makes the plans. I'm the one who's given you the victory. I'm the one who's at work on the earth. And you're just in my hands. And then notice this, verse 28. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. He says, there's no secrets hidden from me. There's no strategy that you can have that can overcome me. There's no plan you can make that I don't already know. Verse 29, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back the way by which you came. Okay, two illustrations there. The second one you probably recognize. A bit in the horse is attached to the reins and when you pull the reins, whether the horse wants to go there or not, it's going there now, right? Because you just pull their head in another direction. Okay. The idea of a hook in the nose is an especially appropriate one because this is how Assyrians humiliated their captives. They wouldn't just shackle them. They would actually run a chain from nose to nose and then pull a leash so everybody was literally being pulled along by the nose. And he says, that's what's going to happen. He says, you're going to go where I send you if I have to drag you there. He says, I will turn you back by the way which you came. I will send you packing. I will turn you around. And then Isaiah continues, and this shall be a sign for you. Who? Hezekiah. 
How do you know this is going to take place? He says, this year you shall eat what grows of itself, in the second year what springs from that, and in the third year you sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Okay. Now, that's a little bit cryptic if you're not familiar with how farming works, but we talked about last week how if Jerusalem is surrounded, where are their crops? Under the feet of the soldiers, trampled, unavailable, unaccessible. That's what makes a siege so powerful, okay? Because you're stuck with what's ever in the storehouses. You have no access to fresh fruit anymore. And what he says is, what I'm going to do is so significant that yes, at first, you're only going to be able to eat what you have because the farms, the fields are going to be trampled. And he says, but you're going to start so quickly that by the third year, you're going to be right back on track. And most people believe, because this is one of the unique things about Hebrew chronology, that the idea here is not three full years, but about 14 months spanning three separate years, because the beginning or the end of a year is counted as a year, or the beginning or the end of a day is counted as a day. And so if the Bible says for three days, that can start at five o'clock on Saturday and finish first thing Monday morning. That still qualifies in Hebrew count, okay? And so the idea is probably here, you're going to miss one full farming season. And so it says you're only going to be able to eat what the trees bear naturally, why? Because the farming season is going to be missed, and so they're just going to be on their own. But the next season you will catch. In other words, this siege is not going to last. And you're going to be right out there. Nothing's going to be destroyed or impossible to bring back. In verse 31, the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upwards. So first he says, your farms and vineyards are going to be fine. And then he uses this picture of farms and vineyards, and he says, so are you. He says, you're going to take root and you're going to bear fruit. Jerusalem will remain and even will thrive. Verse 32, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. In other words, there won't be any initial attack at all. Even the beginning of a siege where they start to build a siege mound, okay? And so the way that you deal with a wall in the ancient world, and we have a surprisingly interesting example of this in Masada, okay, is you just start piling up dirt and you just build a dirt ramp right over the wall, okay? And so it's a classic way to get in. It's very dangerous, but as long as you've got shield support over your head to protect from arrows and stuff, you just slow and steady wins the race until you get over the wall. But he says they're not even going to start to bring the first wheelbarrow of dirt. There's not even going to be, you know, the, the shot heard around the world, the first shot of warfare. Not an arrow will fly. Okay. And so he makes this claim, and then notice verse 34, by the way that he came, the same way he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake, which is exactly what Hezekiah prayed, and for the sake of my servant David. Now, God has been merciful with many of the kings of Judah and many, uh, many times with Jerusalem with this same language, because of David. And most likely here, this is speaking of the fact that God has unfinished business with David and his line. Okay? Now, that idea, for David's sake, is not going to keep them from going into exile in Babylon. But God's going to work in that in a different way and bring about 
the king of David later. In fact, Isaiah has some stuff to say about that. But here, he makes clear, this isn't because you're such great people, Jerusalem. This is because I'm a great God and because I have unfinished business with David. Okay, verse 36. Here's how it happens. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Now, pause. Think about this with numbers. Now, uh, Rabbishek was probably being uh, hyperbolic, but what did he say? You don't even have enough men to mount 2,000 horses. And when the Assyrians finally regather, there's at least, and, and there's definitely survivors, somebody goes home from this, there's at least 185,000, okay? So call it 200,000. That's a significant disparity in numbers. That's a significant outnumbering. And we'd already seen... Isaiah said earlier that God was going to destroy this army with a sword, but not in the hands of man, right? All these things are coming together, but I want you to picture what it goes. He says the siege hasn't started, so here's how I imagine it. There's been a long military trek with pomp and circumstance, and they come into Jerusalem, and they surround it, and they're going to camp for the night, and in the morning it begins, and it's that first night while they sleep, that 185,000 are struck dead. And so when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Shennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Side note, just because it's easy to forget, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. When Jonah goes to preach repentance to Nineveh, he's preaching it to these people, the Assyrians, okay? That's why he has such a problem with it. That's why he balks at that whole thing, okay? Second, the next verse that opens with and as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrash, his God, we know from their own historical documents is not a week later, a month later, it's 20 years after this, okay? So he completely gives up on Assyria, takes it as a loss, goes home. But notice the contrast here. As he was worshiping in the house of Nishrah, his God, Adram Melech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. Okay. So Isaiah, surrounded by the armies of Syria, goes and worships his God and is delivered by 185,000 soldiers. Here the king of Assyria is worshiping before his God, and in the temple he's struck down by his own kid. No protection, no safety in the gods of Assyria. Okay. And then notice, after that they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Ereshaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Now, historically, that's really an interesting story because Ereshaddon, his youngest son, was set to be the king, and his older brothers didn't like it, and so their plan was to kill the king early and take over. But they did it so poorly because they didn't have the constituency behind them that they got ran out of town and went into hiding, so Ereshaddon just walked into town and became king anyway. Okay. But the point here is, just as God said, he brought everything to pass. He delivers Jerusalem. He brings the water all the way up to their necks to make a point. Hezekiah gets the lesson, and in repentance, he chooses, unlike Ahaz, his, his father, to trust in the Lord, and they experience the deliverance of that. Now, chapter 38. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And as I already mentioned, according to verse 6 here, when it says, also I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, this is prior to the siege of Shennacherib, okay? But the story is told here to make some thematic points, okay? 
And so actually, it's really interesting when we reverse these, because what have we just seen? We've seen Hezekiah being the pinnacle of what a king should be, trusting in the Lord, praying to the Lord, listening to the prophet. Here, not so much, okay? And so it does two things. One, it helps us not to keep Hezekiah on the altar. Isaiah has been talking about a righteous king, right, who would deliver Israel. It's not going to be Hezekiah. And so very cleanly and swiftly, Isaiah is going to knock him off his pedestal, okay, and remind us that he's just a man, okay? And then second, it is through these events that God's final judgment is going to come on Israel, or excuse me, on Judah, specifically through the Babylonians. And so notice that that's tied to the story, even though it begins here. So he gets sick, and he's sick to the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Okay. And so Isaiah says, you're dead. So whatever you need to do, get it done. Now, when it says set your house in order, that's probably not merely appoint a new ruler or prepare your household. It also might be get yourself straight with the Lord. Okay. Now, if you read Chronicles, when it walks through this story, it tells us that Hezekiah's greatest problem in life and the reason he was struck sick was because of his pride. He brings about not just reform in Jerusalem, and Judea, but also prosperity. And in his pride, God uses this to get his attention, okay? And so it may even be here a call for repentance, and that's one of the, um, the unknowns in the text, and it changes very much how we think of Hezekiah in just a minute. But Isaiah just says, you think you're sick, but it's sickness unto death. And again, like we talked about in 2 Kings, this is a tremendous mercy, one that very few of us will be given such a gift to know that the time is near. Right? Some of us may have a traffic accident. Some of us may have a heart attack. Even those of us who die in our sleep probably don't have it circled on our calendar. But Hezekiah does. He has an opportunity to set things right, to repent. And that's a merciful gift. Verse 2, then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And so again, we see Hezekiah praying, but it's a different prayer, isn't it? The last prayer was, For your name, O Lord, in sackcloth and ashes. And here it's, Come on, I'm a good guy. Can you just reward me by easing up a little bit? Okay. Now, this overall claim of faithfulness and wholeheartedness is an accurate read of the whole life of Hezekiah, so we don't want to be overly critical here, but it is one of the things that seems to be in contrast with what we just read. On top of that, as we're going to see, his primary interest here is not, there's still work for me to do. It's not, this is in the best interest of your people. It's not, this will glorify your name. It's just, I'm not ready to die yet. It's very personal. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that. God says we should cast all of our cares before him because he cares for us. He cares for Hezekiah, and he's going to hear this prayer. But when we start to think about it and we go, what's going on here? There's a little bit of ambiguity. Verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, go say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer. 
I've seen your tears. Behold, I'll add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you in this city out of the hands of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. And so here we see a pretty simple answer to prayer. Now, if you read 2 Kings chapter 20, there's a little bit more to this story. This is a very concise and speedy version of it. And the reason is because it's going to end with a psalm that Hezekiah uh, composed on the occasion. That's not in 2 Kings. So the author uh, here, Isaiah, is just putting these things together to get to what he wants to share with us. It's as if he's reminding us of what happened so that he can get to this. And so notice, verse 7, this shall be a sign for you from the Lord. The Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I'll make the shadow cast by declining the son of the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial 10 steps by which it had declined. If you read in 2 Kings, there's a little bit of a back and forth there. Which sign would you want? Hezekiah, for the sun to move forward or backwards? And he goes, well, backwards is harder, right? All of that's left out. It's concise and it's speeding along to get to this point, verse 9. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. Okay. This is what Isaiah wants to present to us. And so, verse 10, I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. So what's the first thing he says about this? I was too young. I was cut off at the prime of life. In the very middle of my days, I was going to die. He says, I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. He says, I knew this was temporary, but I came home from my field and my tent's gone. And then notice the second one. He says, like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. Okay, imagine you're making a blanket or a rug on a loom, right? And so it's tied in, warp and woof to two sets. You're weaving the strings back and forth. The last thing you do is cut it free from the device, roll it up and take it with you. It's a pretty good picture of life. It's very similar to the picture that Shakespeare makes of life, okay? But what he says is, it's over. The whole story's written. The blanket is finished. And it's like I'm being cut from the loom. He says, from day to night, you bring me to an end. Just like that, instantaneously, on a single day. He says, I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. Okay, this is the same part that we read earlier when he said he turned to his face to the wall and prayed. But the question is here, what does he mean by comparing his prayer to the chirping of a bird uh, or the moaning of a dove? Okay, and there's a few things here. Either it means that his prayer was too deep for words, right? He couldn't even articulate his longing for life with so much. Um, or it may actually be um, a little embarrassing, that he just couldn't get his act together. And remember here, Hezekiah's problem is not fear of death. He just thinks it's too soon. He just doesn't want to go yet, okay? And so it may be here that the, the idea of this uh, is, is um, just not very impressive. He's just, he's just a total mess over this, okay? My ear, eyes were weary with looking upward. Oh, Lord, I'm oppressed be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he's spoken to me, and he himself has done it. It's one thing to be delivered from Shennacherib, but praying to the God who is taking your life is a different thing. That's what he's identifying here. 
He says, I walked slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. Restore me to health and make me live. There's the request. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. What does he label this? Just an act of mercy. He says, my intentions were self-oriented. It was, it was my wants that you answered, but out of your love you heard my prayer. Okay, he's speaking here of God's compassion. And then he says, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Remember, Chronicles says this whole thing comes from the need for repentance because of his pride. And here he says, not only am I not being judged for that sin, but you've forgiven me. You've, not only are you giving me grace and letting me live, but you've also forgiven me and removed my sins. Verse 18, for Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. There's a lot of parallels to that line in the Psalms. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living he thanks you as I do this day. The father makes known to the children your faithfulness. Now that is such an interesting word here. He says, you're giving me 15 more years and I'm going to convey your goodness to my children. Now why is that striking? Because his son is the worst. Okay. It's amazing that Hezekiah is such a good king after Ahaz is such a bad one, but it's even more amazing that Hezekiah's son, who sees and hears of God's deliverance of Jerusalem and how God graciously extended his life and all these things, becomes the low point in the history of Israel's kings. But we see here that wasn't Hezekiah's intention. Some of you as parents probably need to hear that and need to remember that, that you have a responsibility to your children. But the outcome of that is not under your control fully and completely. And that your children will make their own choices and be their own people, and there's two parts of their story that you can't do, their part and the Lord's part. Verse 20, the Lord will save me, and he will play music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Now most likely, that's the last line, but it's earlier in the story. Remember in, in 2 Kings, he goes, how do I know I'm going to be healed? And he says, well, the sun's going to go back. But why is it inserted at the end here? Um, it, it's one of two reasons. Either there's a thematic reason. He wants to end on that note. Okay. And so he's just explaining the whole thing, how it came to pass, uh, and the poultice uh, is significant. Okay, so side note. We don't know what this sickness is, but there's quite a few sicknesses that would remove Isaiah, excuse me, remove Hezekiah from being able to be publicly around other people. We know that it involves a boil, so maybe it's a swift-moving, beginning emphasis of leprosy. Okay? It's something that would have kept him out of the temple, and it may be here that he's not looking backwards, and even if he is, what he's asking is, where's the evidence so that I'm publicly certified to be back among the people? Okay? In which case, the idea here would be that the sign is not the sun, but the poultice. Okay? Does God need to use physical medicine 
uh, to heal this? Should we start a business where we boil figs and just apply it to all sort of wounds and see what happens here? No, God uses a tangible and visible means even though he doesn't need to. Just like sometimes Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk, and other times he makes mud out of the clay and puts it in a person's eye. Does he need the mud? No. Okay. And so it may be here that this healing is to be tangible and visible and certifiable, put on a calendar. This is the day that I was healed. Like when Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priests. Right? Maybe. However, notice chapter 39, verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, the king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he'd been sick and had recovered. Now, we've had a few references to Babylon and Isaiah, but they've been few and far between. In fact, at this point in the story, they're not really a major player in international history because Assyria is just mopping the floor with everybody. But Babylon is going to be the ones who eventually conquer Assyria and everybody else. They're the next big empire. Okay? Now, that's all in history to come. But here, they hear about the sickness of Hezekiah and they take this opportunity to reach out to introduce themselves and express their good intentions. Heard you were under the weather. Hope you get better, right? Verse 2, Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house and the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or all his realm that Hezekiah did not show him. Okay. Now, again, why does he do this? Maybe... It's because his pride is still very present even after the healing and he can't help himself. And he goes, people to impress, let me impress you. Okay. More likely, because, because this is so utterly foolish with strangers you just met from a faraway nation. Okay. More than likely, he's doing this to give them a full assessment to make himself a positive partner for an alliance. Okay. Now remember, this is before Hezekiah has learned the lesson he can only trust in the Lord. So it may be in this time he still sees Assyria looming. He's already been given the promise, I will heal you and deliver you from Assyria. And he's going, oh, look, a friend. I need friends right now. It may be that's what his mistake is. Whatever it is, it's a poor move, okay? And so notice it says there was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. So either he takes them and shows them all the fortifications across Judah, or he pulls out a map and just delineates where his armies are, where his horses are, those types of things, okay? Verse 3, the Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say and from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. Do you notice how limited his answer is? He only tells him as much as he can and answer the question and move on, right? He wants to know what their conversation was about, and he doesn't really let him into that. He doesn't want to say, well, I showed him everything because I thought it'd be a good alliance. He knows the words of Isaiah. He seems to avoid them here. In verse 4, he said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answers, honestly, I've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now again, remember, he's hearing this prior 
to being surrounded by Assyria. He's hearing this after his life has just been extended for 15 years and he's been promised deliverance from Assyria. Okay, And what he says is, unbeknownst to you, this is where everything's headed. Everything you have that you showed them, they're going to carry out of here. They're going to carry off to Babylon. In fact, he continues here, verse 7, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now remember, that's significant because if the Davidic line comes to an end, okay, Hezekiah has no legacy. Now, side note, if the Davidic line comes to an end, God can't fulfill his promises. So it's not going to be all of his sons that become eunuchs here, castrated and unavailable to have kids. But some of them will. And interestingly enough, many scholars suggest that that's exactly what we find in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel being, like Hezekiah, from the tribe of Judah. Okay. But the very least he recognizes here, there's going to be consequences on your children. That's what's coming here. And notice in verse... Uh, eight, then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the, of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. That's a weird thing to say. Effectively, he says, okay, that's fair. And then we are led into his thought life, and what he's actually thinking is, at least it won't happen while I'm alive. Okay. Now, there is a way to put a more positive spin on this. He may be recognizing it for what it is, another evidence that God is going to keep the promise he's already made, that he's going to extend his life 15 years and deliver him. And so he's just saying, good, you're going to be faithful to your promises, amen. But it does sound just as self-interested as the prayer during the sickness. Whereas he was completely focused on God and his glory in the last story, here we see him tremendously focused on himself. Now, it would be powerful, wouldn't it, if we reversed the stories, and told one first, and then saw him come to a better conclusion, surrender those things, and focus on the Lord. But again, Hezekiah is not the king that Judah has been waiting for. Isaiah seems to want us to know that. And then second, now the history of Judah is suddenly at risk again. The whole book as we've been reading it is, judgment is coming through Assyria, but I'm going to deliver them, and now we find a judgment, and there's going to be no deliverance for this one. You're going into exile. Your kids will be eunuchs. All the treasures will go into Babylon. That creates the need to keep reading. It presents the, the wondering that will lead into next week. Okay? And so again, chapter 39 is the final part of the hinge of the book that prepares us for the second part of the book. All prophecies given during the reigns from King Uzziah to Hezekiah, but all entailing years that are off in the distance and still to come. Let's pray. Father, I hope that all of us can point to occasions where even if we were at our last ditch effort, we just had to, and so we did truly and fully trust in you like Hezekiah. But we can also probably point to occasions where it was just self-interest and the response to your deliverance was just more foolishness and self-centeredness. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, you didn't give us a Hezekiah or call us to be one. You gave us one greater than Hezekiah. One who ever pleased the Father. One who is always faithful. One who knows that we are but dust. 
one who sympathizes with us as our great high priest. And most importantly, one who dealt with our deepest issues, lived the life we could not live, died the death that we deserve, and freely offers us his righteousness and his spirit so that we might walk in obedience and faith. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, realize that a God like that, a God who delivers Hezekiah from himself, a God who delivers Justin, who delivers all of us from ourselves, that is a God who is worthy of all praise and all obedience and all faith. We thank you for the fact that you are who you are, and we pray in little ways and in big in our own lives that you would show yourself to be who you say you are every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.